Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. It is, um, it's a joy to be with you all this morning. Thank you so much for choosing to join us. Um, whether you're here or online, um, we just want you to know your presence and your participation is uh, a gift. Um, we are in a series that we've called Discipleship, Finding Our Way in Jesus. And we've been in it for the last eight or nine weeks. And we have covered a ton of content, uh, particularly about what this rabbi-disciple relationship looks like. And it's really important as we continue in our series today that we remember some of that content, we hold on to that. Um, but I wanna make sure you know that if you are online, um, there's a Bible app, um, there's resources there for you to use. It's just onelifeseattle.org forward slash live. We wanna make sure you're able to connect with us and engage with us in the best way possible. Um, and those of you who are here as well, um, we hope you have a Bible, something to write with, you name it. Um, and you can find Bibles um, in the back of the room if you don't have one. Um, but again, I, my hope is that you can use those tools to help you engage. Uh, that said, I want to remind us of some things that we've learned as we've uh, been going through this series. First thing we learned is about the historical context of the rabbi-discipleship relationship, that it actually predates Jesus. That a rabbi was a master teacher, um, one who had this incredible wisdom and understanding and application of the scriptures. And that the ultimate goal of the people of the day was to be in a discipleship relationship with that rabbi. That's, that's the idea of being a learner or a student or an apprentice of a rabbi. And we learned that um, a disciple wasn't like a student in the way we think of it today. Instead, um, uh, what we learned was that to be a disciple of a rabbi, we were committing to completely rearrange our entire life around that rabbi in order to become like that teacher in every way and in every context of life for the rest of your life. That was the idea back then. It's not just about memorizing information. It's not just about learning a trade. It was about learning a way of life in every context, embodying the way the rabbi lived wherever you go. We learned also an important distinction for understanding this rabbi-disciple relationship, and that was that it was intimate and personal. You were following a person, not rules, not regulations, not policies, not procedures. And in following this person, you were learning how to embody the life of that person as you went through your day to day, learning all the details, not just the big things, but literally, why do you go here? Why do you eat this? Why don't you do these things? And in every context. We also learned that Jesus as a rabbi sees each and every one of us as capable of being like him. And as a result, he invites us. He says, come and follow me, which was the classic kind of invitation to become a disciple in the language of the day. Jesus says that to us, come follow me, be a disciple, an apprentice. And unlike the rabbis of the day, Jesus doesn't have all these tests, these prerequisites. He doesn't require us to have all the answers. In fact, all that's needed to respond to this invitation is for us to say, okay, and to start following and to learn how to be like Jesus as we go. And knowing all this helps us understand when we see these stories of the disciples in the middle of their own trade, fishing, you name it, being invited by Jesus to follow, and they drop everything 
because that was the ultimate back in the day. The disciples, as a result, dropping everything in to follow Jesus, their whole identity changes. They're no longer fishermen. They're no longer tax collectors. They're no longer whatever was identifying them before. They are now identified with a true gospel identity. We're baptized, we learned, in the name of the Father, which makes us family. We are baptized in the name of the Son, which makes us servants. And we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, which makes us sent ones or missionaries. This is our true gospel identity. And when we start to live this out like Jesus modeled for us, it changes everything. We continued in our series then talking about some different ways this is manifested in our action, in our way we engage with people, discussing the way of dependence, which is very countercultural, right? We don't want to be dependent on anyone, but in a rabbi-discipleship relationship, we are. We're dependent. We need Jesus, like we're saying today. We also talked about the way of encounter. How do we encounter God? How do we engage with God? How do we experience God in the moment to moments of life? But also, how does that translate to how we engage with other people? And today, we're going to continue with this kind of teaching of the way, talking about the way of confrontation, which we're already like, uh-huh, that, I don't know if I like that word. Um, but I want us to be thinking about this because if you remember, we decided this to do this series because we believe the church as a whole, not just our church, but the church as a whole, has lost its understanding of discipleship. We've made discipleship into curriculum, into programs. We've added growth charts. We've taken out the relational components. We've just had learning 101, 201. We've made systems that cause us to feel as if we can judge whether someone's a true disciple of Jesus or not. And we've even compartmentalized discipleship to make it something I do on this day and maybe at this time in the morning, but it's not something we do all day. In other words, we've made being, uh, we've made a disciple, making a disciple into something we do versus something we are. And that's a really important thing for us to understand because you see, being a disciple, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus is not something you just do or don't do or something you switch on and off at certain times or at certain levels of accomplishment. Rather, it's a lifelong process of growth, of maturing as a way of life that's at the very core of our being and who we are in Christ. One of the texts we've looked at was Acts 17, 28, that says, for in him, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being, which is, a really short sentence packed with a ton of meaning. In Jesus, we live and move and have our being. That's what discipleship is about. So with that, hopefully you have your Bible. Hopefully you have a piece of paper you have something to write with. If you're online, you can use the Bible app. Um, There's a note section there as well. I want to encourage you during our time, if you want to take notes, write down verses, questions. I'm going to have questions for you to think about, definitions, you name it. It's a great way to go beyond just learning and to allow yourself more space to process even beyond this time. Today, like I said, we're talking about the way of confrontation. So before we dive into that, um, let me open this with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the way that we can encounter you by being in fellowship and community with one another by looking at your word, by prayer, by engaging in worship, um, just by the very fact that your, your Holy Spirit is present with us right now, we can encounter you. 
We recognize in this place that we need you. And we ask this morning that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us and encourage us and call us um, into a deeper understanding of what it looks like for us to follow you and embody who you are and what you're about in our world. And uh, yeah, speak to us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, I'm curious if anyone ever has stopped and wondered why you aren't further along in your discipleship journey. Like, have you ever thought, like me, I've been a Christian for 32 years, how come I'm not more like Jesus by now? I don't know if you, anybody else ever? Greg and I are the only ones, okay. Um, Honestly, when you think about it, like, how many sermons have you listened to? How many podcasts or books have you read about Jesus or a relationship with Jesus? How many Christian conferences have you gone to or classes you've attended or Bible studies or core groups? You name it. We're learning all the time. There's nothing wrong with that, but why are we being transformed to be more like Christ in our day-to-day given all of this content, given all this time? Why don't we see this happening in us and around us? But why don't we see this happening? I mean, there's supposedly a lot of Christians out there. How come we're not seeing massive transformation of our culture and our community? I think it has something to do with this way of confrontation. And so as we begin, I want to take a moment just to think about this word, confrontation. I asked you to think about it. What comes to mind when you hear the word confrontation? If you're online, you can just type your responses there. We have someone monitoring it. But not a trick question. What comes to mind when you hear the word confrontation? Unpleasant, okay. Others, yeah. Trouble, okay. Anything else? What was that? Fighting. Fighting, okay. Others, what comes to mind when you hear the word confrontation? Disagreement. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anything to avoid it. Anything to avoid it, okay. <laughs> All right. That's good. Anything else? Confrontation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, escalation. Escalation. Okay. So maybe my follow-up question has kind of been answered. Is confrontation a good or bad thing? Sounds like generally what we've said, we're not super excited about it. And it doesn't sound like, if I'm assuming correctly, we're not all raising our hands saying, boy, I wish I had more confrontation in my life. I don't want more of this. Psychologically speaking, in the counseling field, we often talk about a client coming to a place where they're able to confront something some reality, some truth that they've been avoiding. Just a couple weeks ago, I got to go to New York. Um, Those of you know, my my father passed away two years ago in the midst of COVID. And so it's only been in the last few weeks that I got to go spend time with family to process. And it's not as if I haven't recognized the reality that my dad is no longer with us. But getting together with my family helped me confront a reality. Even though it's a reality I know, I had to face it in a very different way. So again, there's a different type of confrontation. Those are all really great thoughts. Continuing on, Webster's Dictionary's definition of confrontation looks like this. A face-to-face meeting, the clashing of forces or ideas, a dispute, fight, or battle, or the bringing together of ideas, themes, etc., 
for comparison. So we hit a lot of that. And if we think about confrontation in our culture, it's almost always viewed as a bad thing, or at the very least, not something we ever want or look forward to, right? We might even say it goes against our culture. You see, our culture is all about strengths. We even have strength finders to help us identify our strengths. We're always taught to highlight our strengths. And we are constantly positioning ourselves to build off of our strengths, right? We don't want to be put in positions where our weaknesses are accentuated. But when we're talking about discipleship and we're talking about growth and becoming more like our rabbi, are we really supposed to be all about our strengths? Is that really what God is focused on? I mean, if discipleship is all about formation and reformation and transformation, then how does God go about this work in and through us? In this classic book by the author and professor Robert Mulholland Jr. called Invitation to the Journey, it's all about spiritual formation, and it was just recently um, updated by Ruth Haley Barton. He says this, Approaches to formation that focus only on those places where we are fairly well along can actually become a defense mechanism for avoiding awareness of those areas that are not yet formed in the image of Christ. Ouch, right? (laughs) That's like, oh, how often do we get defensive when we experience some form of confrontation? Let's just say 100% of the time, right? But here's the thing about discipleship and the rabbi-disciple relationship that we like to ignore, and that is that one of the first and most important steps in formation is that of confrontation, a challenge and a call to come out of our brokenness and into fullness of Christ. Or to say it another way, the work of God's formation in us is unsurprisingly taking place at the points where we're not yet formed in the Christ image. Or to say it one other way, Jesus cares much less about our strengths and cares far more about our character and the shaping of our character. And so what this means, which goes completely against everything in our culture, is that part of being a disciple of our rabbi Jesus means embracing and living into a way of confrontation in order for transformation to really occur. And I want to look at this uh, in a number of ways, but particularly we're going to look at John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you can open to John chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 25. Um, So go ahead and get there, and again, if you're online, you can use the online platform as well, Um, or if you're here and you need a Bible, there's ones in the back. Um, John chapter 6, starting with verse 26, Jesus has just done some powerful things. He's just accomplished the feeding of 5,000 people with five loaves and two small fish. Then he followed that up with walking on water, so pretty pretty legit miracles that have just happened. So as you can imagine, there's tons of people wanting to get up to Jesus. They're connecting. And even after this happens, Jesus and the disciples go to the opposite end of the lake. They're kind of trying to get away from the crowds. The next morning, the crowds realize Jesus is in the same area. They come looking for him after having accomplished all these things. And that kind of gets us to this place where now that these crowds have arrived again, Jesus is going to speak some words of confrontation and, and some kind of intense teaching, talking about how Jesus is the bread of life. So 
let's take a look at John chapter 6, starting with verse 25, and Greg's going to help us with that. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So already you can feel this little bit of confrontation here building up. You thought this was why you're here, but let me just tell you why you're here. He continues. Then they asked him, what must we do to the, uh, what must we do to the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who was sent. He is sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. So the confrontation is building. Right now, Jesus is literally saying, I know you think this based on your understanding of the scriptures. I want to tell you something different, and I'm going to challenge you with that. And some of you aren't even believing this right now. So the confrontation's pressing these people more and more. Jesus goes on. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So now the confrontation's kicking into defensiveness, right? How can this be? Not only is he challenging our words, but we're pretty sure this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, right? We watched him, we know his family. How can he say this? And defenses are building. And then Jesus continues. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one whom is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. So it's not hard to see how this confrontation is challenging what they believe, how they understand the scriptures. And if you remember what we learned about the 
gospel kind of understanding of who these Jewish people were and how they understood the word. These guys knew the word. They had studied the scriptures. They, they have an idea of what this looks like. And Jesus is confronting them and challenging them. And they have to decide now, will I believe this stuff that Jesus is teaching? And will I let it transform my way of thinking and seeing the world? Or will I defend my way of thinking that denies the ways of Jesus? So the, the text continues, Jesus continues to build up these challenging teachings. It continues to ramp up, and it even gets more intense. We're going to skip ahead to verse 60, where Jesus continues. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Awesome. So here, even the disciples, again, these aren't just random people. These are followers of Jesus who have been following Jesus. There's other people that are interested. They're getting their challenge to what they think and believe and an invitation into a different way of living, including the disciples. Some of them wrestling with their doubt decide I'm not moving forward. And this is a picture of us all the time. And here are the disciples. Jesus even says, are you guys with me? Right? This is not easy teaching. I'm talking about eternal life. I'm talking about a completely different way of understanding the text, the scriptures, and how we live our life. And there's a challenge. There's a call. Following the way of Jesus requires us to live into the way of confrontation in order for the transformation into Christ-likeness to occur. And whenever we're faced with that, each of us, we have an option then. Will we enter into that and respond to that by following the example of Jesus or a different example? Now, the same author, Robert Mulholland, says this, if indeed the work of God's formation in us is the process of forming us in the image of Christ, obviously it's going to take place at the points where we are not yet formed in that image. This means that one of the first dynamics of holistic spiritual formation will be confrontation through some channel, be it scriptures, worship, the word of proclamation, the agency of a brother or sister in Christ, even the agency of an unbeliever. The Spirit of God may probe some area in which we are not formed in the image of Christ. That probing will probably always be confrontational and will always be a challenge and a call to us in our brokenness to come out of the brokenness into wholeness in Christ, but will also be costly call because that brokenness is who we are. I don't know about you, but that is like both so good to hear and so hard to hear right? Especially the idea of the agency of an unbeliever could be the one that's probing us. 
right? We, we might be like, oh, my Christian brothers and sisters, they're challenging me and I'll listen to it. I read the scripture. But when it's an unbeliever, I'm pretty confident they don't know what they're talking about, right? That's not what they're talking about here. How do we receive confrontation? If you think of the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, in many ways, Jesus has been working with these fishermen, these tradesmen, these tax collectors, you name it. They're not necessarily the most educated. They don't have all this money. Here comes this guy to Jesus. He's young. He's loaded with money, and he's got influence. He's like the the person you want everyone to come to your church to look like, right? All this money, all this power, all this influence in the community. The guy comes right up to Jesus, kneels and worships Jesus, and he asks Jesus, must what, what, must I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him in Mark 10, he says this, you know the commandments, right? Because they all do. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. You should not defraud or honor your father and mother. Teacher, this rich young ruler says, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Another translation said, Jesus showed love to him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Note it says that Jesus shows love to him first, then confronts him. We'll talk about this more in a bit. Um, but for now, for the next bit of a time, I just want to start confronting each and every one of you about all the things you struggle with. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, what I do want to do is quickly hit what I think are the four main ways Jesus confronts us with regards to our discipleship. Now, to be clear, I think there's lots of ways. Um, I'm going to hit the four primary ones that I think we're going to hit home, and I'm going to hit them pretty quick because I think we're all going to feel it a bit. And I think it's a good thing. Um, and I really encourage you to jot down these things and write these questions down and think about it, how it applies to your own story and your own discipleship journey. So with that, these are the four main things um, I think Jesus confronts in discipleship. The first thing Jesus confronts is religious superiority. The spirit of judgmentalism which is really rampant in the church, and I'm just gonna be clear, oftentimes I'll say in the church in general, but I'm gonna say it's here. There's nowhere you can go, Christian or not, in our culture where judgmentalism isn't running rampant. But I think it especially happens in the church. And what happens is we often minimize our own stuff and maximize other people's stuff. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus tells a story comparing the religious elite of the day versus this bottom-of-the-barrel sinner tax collector to make a point about judgment and contempt towards others. They're in the temple to worship and pray. It's the exact opposite of the culture and what everyone expects. It's the, the humble sinner tax collector that owns their sin and asks for mercy that gets it right, not the judgmental, righteous, spiritual elite. In Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus gives us this important teaching. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Think about how judgmental you are, and think about that turn towards you. 
right? That's what Jesus says. The way you judge is going to come back at you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? And then we get the good work. You hypocrite, right? First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There was a time when being a critic was a job. You were a specialized person that understood certain things, like a food critic. Your palate was professionally honed in to be able to give a critique about something, right? Now everyone is a critic, and now everybody is a critic about everything, right? That's our culture. But what we see is that the gospel points us inward towards repentance and transformation. It's not pointing us outward to critique and judgment. And so with that, in what ways or areas of life do you allow the spirit of judgmentalism to help you minimize your own sin and maximize other people's problems? I'll say that again. In what ways or areas of life do you allow the spirit of judgmentalism to help you minimize your own sin and maximize other people's problems? Now, the second thing Jesus confronts in discipleship is what I call our stubborn sins. Our stubborn sins, which these are the ones that kind of feel unconscious. They're deep. They happen to be with us for a prolonged time. Um, We don't always even realize they come out. Elise, author Elise Fitzpatrick says this, how can I tell if I'm wondering, uh, sorry, how can I tell if I'm worshiping the blessings that I desire or God? Let me summarize it in this way. If you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire is taking God's place and you're functioning as an adulterer. If you don't get what you want, are you willing to sin to get it? Or if you don't get what you want, do you just kind of get upset and do something sinful, right? Does our desires for certain things overpower our relationship with God? Do we try to get in control of things when things don't go the way we want? A good biblical example of this might be Peter, right? We saw in the story before, who else would we go to? You have the words of life, right? And yet, later we see denying Jesus, right? We, we get caught up in things, and they're deep-rooted, and we don't realize how easily we can just shut everything off. And so another good question for us with regards to this is, what are those stubborn sins in your life that seem to never go away? They're not hidden. They just come up. Oh, sometimes when they come up, you don't even realize it, but you've, you've been struggling with them for some time. What does it look like for you to experience confrontation on these and not be defensive, right? That's a big one. Now, the third area Jesus confronts in discipleship, I would say, is the hidden sins. These are the unconfessed sins. These are the things that we probably need a deep kind of inventory of our hearts to own, Um, that we think nobody else knows about, 
And a good example of this would be the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which we're not going to go into. But we know it's this whole crazy story, seeing this person going after this woman, taking advantage of the situation, trying to have her husband killed, covering the whole thing up. I mean, it's just this massive covering up, gets through the whole thing, thinks it's all done with, and then someone comes, Nathan comes and says, I gotta bring this up. I'm gonna confront you. And even faced with the truth and everything about it is being accurate, does David wanna accept it there? No. In what ways might God be inviting you to allow the light of Christ to shine upon and confront these, these secret areas of your life? And how will you respond? And again, I wanna be clear. Although you may think nobody knows about it and maybe you're really good at hiding these, I promise you, you haven't hidden them from God. They're not hidden from God. So how will you allow yourself to be confronted in these areas and not be defensive? Final one. Jesus confronts in discipleship is the sins we tolerate. Our convictions can get watered down to the point where our worldliness kills the impact of the church. And I want to be careful with this one because there's lots of different interpretations about things, right? Um, But we understand this. We allow the ways of our culture to shape the way we live and the way we see things instead of allowing our identity as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, to be the things that impact how we see and engage and enact in the world. We do the exact opposite. We let the world shape our way of living as opposed to our discipleship relationship with Jesus. And so with that, in what ways have you watered down your faith and your convictions by allowing certain sins you know are not okay? How might God be confronting you on this for the sake of transformation? Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, dang, <laughs> that's, this is not really what I came to church for today, right? Like, I, I wasn't really wanting to do this. And yet, at the same time, it's really important, and it's good. And it goes back to this question, what's the point? What's the point of confrontation with regards to our discipleship relationship with Jesus? Because if we remember, our world uses confrontation to harm, to battle, to argue, to cause trouble, to compare, and it's almost always used as a form of judgment, right? That's the way of the world. But what we see with Jesus is that it's very different. Jesus is our rabbi, our master teacher. Jesus is our brother. Jesus is our family. Jesus is our savior. He's the teacher who believes that we can be like him and even gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do so, so we don't have to try to do this on our own. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, that Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And the scriptures also tell us that God is love, not acts like this or or is this once in a while, but that God is the actually is love, the definition. So when we look at Jesus and we see the exact representation of God, a God who is love, what we experience is God's perfect love in the flesh. 
And so that's good news because it means that the way of confrontation as embodied by Jesus is always rooted in and motivated out of perfect love. It's always rooted in and motivated out of perfect grace. It's always rooted in and motivated out of perfect kindness. And that's the exact opposite of our world's way of confrontation. In the way of Jesus, we see that this kind of confrontation is not meant to shame. It's not meant to belittle or hurt or anger. Rather, the scriptures say it's God's love and kindness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to transformation. It's God's love and kindness that leads us to reforming ourselves to be more like Christ. It's God's love and kindness that leads us towards more fully embodying the way of Jesus in the way we live our life. So to say it in another way, all confrontation in the way of Jesus is ultimately motivated by love to bring us into long-lasting restoration and transformation. And it sets the example for us to embody a different way of confrontation when it comes to our own relationships as well. That's where it gets even more challenging, right? It challenges us to embody the way of Jesus in how we confront our family how we confront our parents or our spouse or our kids or our in-laws, how we confront our neighbors, those in need, our, our teammates, our roommates, the person who just cut you off in traffic, right? Those who differ from you in any way possible, how we confront our enemies, you name it. If we're experiencing the kind of confrontation that's embodied by Jesus and he's trying to transform us to be more like him, then one of the ways that will be evident is how we transform the way we con- confront others. And this is what transformation from the inside out looks like. It starts with the way of confrontation, the way our rabbi Jesus embodies this, not the way of the world. Amen? Now, that's not as scary to me, right? And I hope you hear. That's a very different experience of confrontation because at the heart of it and the root of it is love and grace and transformation, encouragement, and it's a way of saying, I know you can do this. You can be like me. I'm going to be with you. You don't have to do this on your own. I have the Holy Spirit to walk with you. And so I hope you hear that today. We need to stop and, and, and allow all this to soak in. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And as they do, I have a couple questions for you. I know I've already given you quite a few questions, but a couple more as a form of reflection and application. And if you're in the room and you don't mind using the connection card that's on your seat or um, there's a little QR code you could use as well, that would be great. If you're online, there's a link there for you to use as well. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on any one of these. Question number one. What are some areas of your life that are not bearing the image of God that Jesus might be challenging you with? What are some areas of your life that are not bearing the image of God that Jesus might be challenging you with? And just so we're clear, we all have these. It's not like one of us here has got it all together and the other one doesn't. We all do. So let's just be honest. It's all about our relationship with our rabbi. Number two, how does understanding God's way of confrontation invite you to be more open to what God is challenging you with? 
right? Knowing that it's rooted out of love and grace and kindness, that the goal is not to belittle or make angry or to judge, but to invite you into a different way of living that represents and embodies Jesus in our community. Number three, what are some relationships in which confrontation must occur where you can apply the example of Christ to? You're thinking of some people that you got some words for, you've had some relational dynamics with, and you want to confront them about that in light of what we understand of the way of confrontation as embodied by Jesus, how might you apply that in the way you consider your confrontation to them? With that, feel free to use this space to pray, to confess, to own, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled, to dream, whatever you feel to do in this space. Um, the worship team's gonna play for a little bit just to give us a space to kind of consider this. Um, if you have any prayer needs, the prayer team is gonna be back up here in person to pray with you. If you're online, all you have to do is hit the request prayer button on the left of the chat line, and they would love to pray with and for you. Um, again, they're gonna be doing that in order it's received. So if there's someone here, you might have to wait online and vice versa. Um, so just be patient, but they would love to pray with you. So. I'm going to close this with prayer, then Brian's going to lead us in one last song of response, and then we'll continue with our time. So let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we ask that you would help us to be open to hear and receive and respond to your confrontation because we know you have our best in mind and that it's always motivated out of your perfect love for us. So both here and online and, and those listen later, we just corporately and individually confess our areas of religious superiority to you. We confess our stubborn sins to you. We confess and give you our hidden sins. And we confess the way we've tolerated certain things when we know we shouldn't. God, Help us to be transformed by your confrontation that we might be examples of your grace, your peace, and your love to others as well. And God, transform us from the inside out that we might be more like you in how we love others like you love us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the way of confrontation, how radically different it is from the world. We hear it and receive it from you today. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.